Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Fullest Podcast. I'm your host, Nikki Bostwick, and today's guest is Bianca Artadi Soares, who's the vice president of Star Creek Land Stewards. I'm going to share with you a little bit about Bianca before we get started, but I'm really excited because Bianca reached out to me. I was on a podcast with Pia. And um, we started talking about fire and just natural mitigation and Bianca had reached out and it just felt so organic to connect with her. And I'm so excited to learn more about her and her family business. But basically Bianca is a fourth generation Basque sheep rancher and her mother spent 29 years as a nurse before she decided to get back into the family's livestock history and purchase sheep and goats to work as a targeted grazer. So Bianca jumped into this opportunity as soon as it presented itself and was quickly as passionate about grazing for wildfire prevention as she was for the animals. Hi, Bianca. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for being here. I can't wait to get into all the wonderful things you guys are doing at Star Creek Land Stewards. I guess maybe you can share with us first and foremost about, I just asked you this question, I think it's really interesting. What is a Basque sheep rancher? What does that mean? So you're a fourth generation Basque sheep rancher. So Basque people are an ethnicity. We're from Northern Spain, Southern France. So you can think like San Sebastian, um, Bilbao, Mir, Pamplona. Um, And Years and years ago, it was very common for American sheep ranchers to use Basque herders to help manage their sheep and to shepherd their sheep. And so my story, like most Basque families here in the United States, started with my great-grandfathers immigrating to the United States as shepherds and working for American sheep ranches throughout the West, Idaho, Colorado, all over, and eventually locating here in California and building up their own sheep ranches and becoming sheep ranchers themselves. So uh, today it's like a big part of our lives and how we run our business and the community of other sheep ranchers that we know also have a lot of our own bass culture mixed in with it. That's amazing. So I know that, um, can you tell us a little bit about Star Creek and just what it is. I know that you guys are part of a wool company and you're the only North American ranchers to hold the responsible wool standard certification. So can you tell us what that means? Yeah. So my family has two different businesses. We have Talbot Sheep Company, which is the family business, the one that I'm the fourth generation of today. Um, And Talbot Sheep Ranch or Talbot Sheep Company has Ramblay sheep, which are a wool breed. Um, And so with those sheep, we raise them for wool. We do some grazing projects working in vineyards and olive orchards and things like that to help mitigate needs for using machinery or herbicides for weeds. But mostly that company is focused on wool production. Um, So every year those sheep are shorn for their wool. And about two or three years ago, we became part of Shanica Wool Company, which is a larger farm group of about seven or eight ranches now here in the United States. And we're really dedicated to not only producing American-made products and American wool, but also we're all certified and we're the only ranches in North America to be certified and under the responsible wool standard. Um, And that's a standard made by the textile exchange. It's third-party audited. Um, It just means that we're putting, you know, the best practices at the forefront in regards to 
the way we care for our animals, the way we care for the land, our employees, um, and it's third-party audited. So it's not to say that every sheep rancher or most sheep ranchers don't all do the same things and are also looking to take care of the land as much as their animals, as much as their employees. But it means that we're going through that extra step of being sure that we're audited for it and that we're willing to to you know open up our business and let it be looked at by an auditor into in order to ensure that the customer knows the quality of the products that they're buying whether you're buying the raw wool or you're a you know customer at a retail store buying a sweater so with that company we're really focused on you know the utmost care and quality assurance of all of our practices and then aside from Talbot Sheep Company about 8 or 9 years ago now my mother purchased Star Creek land stewards, which at the time was uh, part of Star Creek Ranch and was um, just some livestock that had started doing targeted grazing. Um, they had just kind of gotten into the idea of targeted grazing, which is contract grazing. So we, as the livestock producers, are paid to perform a service of grazing. And I'll explain a little bit more about that. But um, about, so about eight or nine years ago, my mom purchased that business and we started working for a variety of clients, whether it's um, you know regional park districts, state parks, private owners, private ranch owners, communities, schools, and we started providing the service of targeted grazing. Um, so that's been about eight or nine years now. That's amazing. Yeah, can you get into what targeted grazing is, why it's important, and how it works? I'm so happy to know that there are you know public. It's like a public you know, offering, I know that fire, you work closely with like fire departments sometimes and other municipalities, but I'm just curious when you tell us a little bit about it, if you think that it's a solution that can be used like 100% and you don't need to get into other different, I mean, it's like a prevention method, right? But I'll let you get into it and then we'll talk about the next question, which I just, I'm always like, can we only do this and not do the other stuff that they do? Yeah, great, great question. So targeted grazing at the core is the exact same thing as any other format of grazing, right? Sheep and goats, in my case, other, you know, some businesses do use cattle, but sheep and goats are most common because they're the easiest to move around. Um, we take them out and they eat. Like, that's what they do. That's what we do for our targeted grazing business. That's what they do for our wool business. So it is at its core the same. The difference is that we are targeting specific areas. So say you live in a neighborhood that backs up to a bunch of open space, whether it's city or park district or owned by another home, private landowner that doesn't take care of it, whatever it is. Say it's a big rectangle, 30 acres. Targeted grazing means that we don't just throw the animals out there and they eat everything in those 30 acres. It could just mean that what we're doing is only grazing 100 foot fuel break behind the home. So from the back of your fence out 100 feet. And we're doing one long swath like that. It means that if you're in a big regional park and there is a fire road that goes through the whole thing, then maybe we're only grazing 50 feet, 100 feet on either side of that road, but leaving the like 600, 800, 1200 acres of other vegetation completely untouched. The goal is to strategically place animals by using electric netted fence in areas that are the highest priority either to protect a neighborhood or homes or school or to allow access for firefighters and fire crews to be able to get into places so that's why you would want to graze a fire road um, so the difference with it really is that 
rather than, okay, the whole 1200 acre ranch is fenced, just drop the animals off and we'll see them in, you know, 12 months. It means that we're creating small paddocks. We're using a, our company specifically works in herd sizes of 400. So we bring 400 animals in. Sometimes it's all goats, sometimes it's all sheep, sometimes it's a mix. And that depends on what the vegetation looks like. And we build paddocks of about two acres at a time. And we move them every day, every two days, every three days, depending on how fast they eat from one to the next. So it creates this contiguous fuel break or contiguous grazing line. Um, and we do that to ensure that they're evenly grazing each area. They're not grazing a ton up high where they like to hang out and not grazing as much in the lower areas. We want an even graze everywhere. So there's a lot more attention to detail. And the goal is not to just make our animals gain weight so we can sell them at a high profit. That's not the way that this type of business is structured. The goal is to provide a service. And so depending on what the client's goal is, we graze a certain way. And um, it can be very technical. There's a lot of mapping involved. There's a lot of on the ground site visits. There's a lot of surveying for native species of plants and animals, invasives. Um, you know, we're looking at restoration projects. Sometimes we're butting up against, um, you know, like artifacts and things. So those types of areas have to be completely avoided. It's, a, it's extremely, it can be extremely, extremely detailed. That's amazing. So my question is, do you think it's an effective wildfire management tool? Is this something that, let's say, like I mentioned to you before, or I mentioned this on the podcast, like Laguna Beach, for example, which is where I'm from, we do that as um, a city where we have goats grazing to support with wildfire management. I'm not aware of the program uh, in the way where I don't know how, if it's only a certain time of year. I I only knew about it because they would come graze below my house when I was growing up, but that was only happening like in the spring and summer. And so I don't really know if that's something that you guys would like contract out with the city year round, because obviously it takes time. Like you said, there's a lot that's involved or is it something that, yeah, only happens seasonally? That's a great question. So it depends on what the client's goal is. Likely for a city, their goal is more for fire prevention as opposed to like a specific invasive plant that they're working to target. Therefore, the targeted time of year is usually right prior or during fire season. So when most of our projects happen from about late March, mid-March until September. Now that changes because the last couple of years, fire season has been longer. You know, we had a fire in January this year. So it depends. But typically, if the goal is for fire, the grazing happens sometimes between mid-March and September. And most projects are multi-year. So you would come, you'd want the animals to come back year after year. It takes about three years to really see a difference if your goal is brush reduction and like, you know, reducing the amount of brush and bringing in more grasses. But more or less, it's a seasonal thing. You want to get in, create that fire break or, you know, remove that vegetation. And then the land rests the whole rest of the year. And then it would happen again the following year. That's amazing. So yeah, can you tell us a little bit of the statistics around the fact that it can be a great wildfire management tool? Yeah. So there's this, you know, like this is a practice that's been happening for since millennia, right? Like sheep were the very first domesticated animal. We've been herding sheep forever, literally. But the idea of using them in this specific way for targeted grazing is rather a new concept. Like I would say in the last 20 to 30 years. There, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. Something that was 
since the beginning of time as well. Yeah. The idea of using them as a tool in modern day is a much more newer thing. Granted, you know, indigenous cultures have been doing this forever. So because of that, though, there hasn't been a ton of research done. There is right now we are getting into a time when, you know, most agencies and universities are conducting some kind of research on the effects of grazing on land, whether it's sheep, goats, cows. For our personal herd, on average, if we're working on a very intensive project, so one where they're really trying to remove the bulk of the vegetation and we're working on really strategic fencing, we graze about an acre and a half a day. So one herd of 400 animals can graze about an acre and a half of land a day. On average, sheep and goats eat about three to 5% of their body weight a day. So that would mean that one herd, again, this is like pretty average, but one herd can remove around 67,000 pounds of dry matter a month. So when you're talking about dry matter, that's grass, that's brush. Those are like low hanging trees. And again, the goal is not to remove all of this from the environment. Like we, those plants aren't going in anywhere, right? They're staying there. But rather than being cut and left on the ground to dry and releasing that carbon, but also creating a lot of dry, now very dry fire fuel, that all that vegetation is being digested and then like pooped out as manure, which is fertilizer, which goes right back into the soil. So it's a much more natural cycle and much more natural way to handle removal of vegetation. There are many universities that are doing research on this. You know, the University of California's Cooperative Extension has county representatives all throughout the state. Most counties in the state are using or utilizing targeted grazing. And so most of those areas are now conducting their own research about things. You know, there's research being done. Of course, none of this is like officially out and ready yet, but we're in the process of participating on different levels of grazing. So completely ungrazed grass, somewhat grazed grass, and then grass that's been grazed down to four to three inches. And if the effects, if a fire does come, how high do those flames burn? How hot does that fire burn? How quickly does that fire spread? And it's been really, really exciting just to see. I mean, it, it makes sense. It's common sense in a lot of ways. If you remove a lot of that vegetation, the fire can't burn as much because there's not enough food for it, not enough fuel. And so it's been really Im- impressive to see just how much of an effect even a little bit of grazing has on slowing down a fire and, you know, giving our firefighters a chance to even get in there to try to slow and stop these enormous fires from really taking off. I love that so much. I just, I think that anytime we can use a more natural method and that's also, like you mentioned, it's regenerative. They're creating fertilizer, right? right? That's natural. It's making the ground more fertile, which means that we are then able to absorb more. We don't have this like dry, Mm -hmm. you know, soil that's dead essentially because yeah, it's so amazing. I love it. So I'm curious too, because then the ground must be more moist, you know? Yeah. And there's another more studies being done on like doing soil sampling to test for carbon. So like the same land each year is being sampled one to two times a year at different times to see how much carbon is being stored in that land as it's being grazed annually. And it, in theory, yeah, if enough roots are can, able to be maintained in there while, you know, mowing or cutting up, or which by eating up above, that does tend to increase water holding capacity because that soil is alive and those root systems are not being ripped out or, you know, sprayed and killed. They're just dormant during the summer months. So 
yeah, in theory, I, we haven't tested this everywhere, but the, it does increase water holding capacity. Hi guys, I wanted to take a second to tell you about my friend Olivia, who's a clinical herbalist who makes some of the most effective and creative herbal tinctures and capsules I've ever tried. You may recognize her as the founder and formulator behind Organic Olivia, a company she started essentially by accident after years of frustration with her own health issues and zero answers from the conventional world. After tackling her own chronic health concerns with herbal medicine and studying clinical herbalism for three years in New York, Olivia's mission is to provide people with real-life solutions to their needs by tapping into the power of traditional therapeutic plants and intelligent evidence-based formulation. She combines her years of research and experience to get rid of the guesswork for those dealing with everything from mood circles to hair thinning, thyroid complaints, digestive difficulties, focus issues, and more. Beyond her line of herbal formulas, which by the way, you have to read the reviews on her website. It's incredible to see the way her products are impacting people. She dedicates a huge portion of her time to writing informational articles and her own chart-topping podcast, What's the Juice? Olivia believes education is key for us to be able to take control of our health. So on her show, she breaks down everything from hormone hacks to improving your microbiome to how you can quite literally speak to your body when something big happens in your life and you need a software update, which you all know I'm all about tapping into your intuition. Organic Olivia has been a notable voice in the wellness space for over 10 years, and I just deeply resonate with her message about using traditional wisdom and modern herbal medicine to get to the root of your health issues so you can truly live your most vibrant, full life. Organic Olivia is offering the fullest listeners 10% off your purchase. So be sure to use code THEFULLEST at checkout at organicolivia.com. This code is for first-time purchasers only. Enjoy. So when you guys go out to get business, your like criteria is it is someone who owns maybe an acre and a half of land, like you said, that's like a day's worth of work for mm-hmm. the herd. Is that something that's too small for you guys or you take that on? What does it look like? And then also, are you trying to recruit new communities into implementing this into their programs? Yeah. So at this point, our business is working at the minimum of 10 acres and up. Um, We've gotten to a point now where we at one time in the summer can be working in 12 different counties with 12 different herds and Um, it's just too much moving around. The goal is to be able to keep the animals on the ground for at least a week before we need to put them on a truck and move them to the next project. Um, So we have a a project minimum right now of 10 acres. However, there are really great resources. Um, Matchgraze.com is put on by the University of California's Ag Extension. And they, it's a, it's a server that like, individuals can go on and look in their area and be matched with a grazer who would works in their area and on projects of their size. So I often, if people reach out to me and they have, you know, a quarter of an acre or something smaller than we can handle, if I don't know a grazer already working in their area, that's working with, with projects that size, that's a great resource to help people find grazers because there are more and more people coming into this business. And it's the easiest place to start is with doing small projects like yards. So there are, there are always new people jumping in on that. Um, and that's a great resource. 
That's so cool. So yeah. You could, if you had a quarter acre, have someone come out instead of like mowing your lawn. That's what you would do. Yeah. You could have it's someone amazing. bring five goats to your house for, you know, a week or whatever it would take. Yeah. That's so fun. <laughs> yeah. I'm so happy there's an online resource for totally. this. That's really great. Thanks so much that so yeah so for you guys obviously it doesn't make sense to do less than 10 acres mm -hmm. for moving them around but yeah what does it look like when you do you, do you personally or do you have someone on your team that approaches new um, communities and tries to because what's the alternative to this like not doing anything yeah so historically in California over the last you know couple of decades the alternative has been to do nothing which is why we're seeing so many you know, unmanageable wildfires. There's been no prescribed burning. A lot of grazing has been removed from public lands and it's caught, we've seen the effects of that. At this point, however, there's been a change because we obviously are seeing that there's a desperate need for land management. And there are a variety of ways to do that. Grazing is one, prescribed burning is another, chemicals are another, you know, hand tools, power tools, mowing is another option. And to be honest, I do believe that there is a place for every one of those things, but it is really amazing that nowadays we have the tools of grazing to use because it can be done. We can cover very large landscapes, very large amounts of acres around cities and homes and schools and communities and highways, um, and it's extremely effective. My favorite combination is to use sheep or goats, and then follow it up in areas of very dense brush or tree over tree growth with hand with hand crews. So people coming out and trimming, you know, removing that like dead, all the dead brush that's left behind, removing low hanging limbs that the animals don't eat. That's the best, absolute best result is when you use, you use grazing first and then follow it up with a hand crew who now can access the dense vegetation because the animals have thinned it out. There are a lot of fire safe communities and fire protection districts that have just absolutely taken off in the last few years. Uh, if you don't, you, I would check first in your own community if you have a fire safe organization or a fire protection district, join that if you can, because there's a ton of good information. They have access to, you know, be able to apply for grant funding from like Cal Fire this year, which has had so much money being that they're throwing into these types of projects. And they're able to get, you know, more than just one house done with grazing projects or with other stuff. They're able to get a whole community involved in a project, which is so much more effective. You know, you as the responsible homeowner grazing the land behind your home, creating that field breaks, awesome. But that's a Band-Aid. You know, you need your whole neighborhood to be buying into this idea that we need to be protecting ourselves from a fire. We need to have a fuel break. We need to have that fire break. You know, we need that 100 feet. So if a fire does come, It'll hit that spot that's been managed and the fire will either smolder out itself completely or at least slow enough that firefighters have a chance to get in there and protect your neighborhood. So a community effort really is the most effective, if not the only way to do it. Um, but I would, you know, if you, if you haven't, if you don't, and if you don't have a fire safe organization in your, in your area, um, you know, you can reach out to California Fire Safe. They are like a statewide organization and they will help get one organized in your region because Today, it's just too important to be working with, you know, your neighbors and your community at large in order to come up with uh, a process. Um, but, you know, prescribed fire is another amazing tool. Like, it, there's a reason it's been used as long as it has and it's as effective as it has. However, it's not possible to do everywhere. You know, 
it's hard to do that in the middle of a town, um, which is why grazing comes in handier. But in, you know, these more wildland spaces that are further away from homes, prescribed fire is an amazing tool. Um, but yeah, today in today's day, I do see grazing as like one of the best and most effective ways to manage our vegetation around cities and towns in a way that can encompass a very large amount of land and in a way that's beneficial to the land around it. Would you guys be someone that would like go in to an area that is like a wildland area and it would be like a combination of a prescribed fire and your work? Is that also like a combination that happens or is that not, or, like you mentioned, is that typically like if there's a fire road or a trail? Um, typically, we haven't worked, actually, we've done a couple of research projects with coming in like after fires have burned, you know, the great, we come in like a year or two later and start grazing to manage that. We've done, some of those have been for research. Others, like, you know, Napa burned so much in the last 10 years. There's a lot of land that we graze up there that was burned before. And so it's been neat to go in and just manage what's left behind now. Um, a lot of, but a lot of the places that we work have never, have not been managed in any way in, you know, a decade or more. There isn't always a road. There isn't always a trail. You know, it is a great idea if there is a fire road to manage around that so that firefighters can have access to get into these places in case of an emergency. But oftentimes we're working in places that have not been managed at all. And the animals on the ground are the very first thing that's come in to do, to make any impact. So it doesn't always have to be a spot that's, you know, in the middle of town. We, we work in, you know, rather remote areas sometimes just creating a fuel break far outside of town just to give some kind of a buffer in case of an emergency. Do you happen to know if with, so, okay, well, let's um, take like the 100 foot setback, which is what's been recommended in my town as well and what you've been mentioning. Does that mean that the, 100 feet is literally like just soil or is there like still some level of vegetation still there because i know a lot of people like specifically right now in an area in laguna that i love and it's so green and like just so beautiful but they're proposing that it's like a really crazy fire hazard and the city wants to propose to bring in the goats and do like a hundred foot setback, but a lot of people are saying no to it, which I'm sure just because aesthetically, like they don't like that. So I think it's interesting because there's pushback for so many reasons and um, everyone needs to be on the same page. But obviously to me, like the fire is, it's not worth it to have a fire. Um, but I'm curious, like, what does it look like? You know, is it just leaving literally just soil so that it so that it goes out naturally on its own or easier to fight? That's a great question. So typically the first time we work in a new area, um, there's that type of pushback because the idea is that conceptually the people have is that you come in and nothing is left behind. When in practice, the goal is to leave three to four inches of vegetation on the ground. Now in August in California, when you leave three to four inches on the ground, but the animals have like walked around it and broken that remaining grass and it ends up laying flat, it can look a lot more intense than what the actual amount of dry matter left on the ground is. But the goal is not to leave dirt. You know, we don't want our animals eating dirt because, or eating to that level because that means they're likely picking up dirt when they're taking bites of feet and, you know, maybe even picking up their own poop 
which you don't really want. So we, the, the goal is never to graze that hard. Granted, again, like in August, it could appear, it can appear more intensively grazed than it actually is. But it, yeah, about a hundred feet is definitely seems to be the very, the most common recommendation. I'm curious what kind of vegetation is there, if there's brush or if it's all grasses, but usually the first year it's done is the year that people get more, most nervous about it. Yeah, no, that makes sense. The other thing I was going to mention is I'd love to know what happens if there's any like data you have on this with, because uh, oftentimes, you know, we talked about Napa um, recently, California, like years ago, Montecito, even the town I live in, Laguna, with these like natural wildfires and different nat fires that have come in, then there's like an issue of landslides after, right? Right. And so with having targeted grazing, I'm sure that that supports the land and supports like the prevention of landslides, right? Because the land isn't like deplete. I don't know. Tell me more about that. Is that something that I'm just like th making up in my head or how does that work? No, not at all. I mean, they're all definitely related. Um, erosion is certainly a concern because one of the other attractions of using sheep or goats or sheep and goats on a project is that they can handle really steep slopes that humans can't get into. So if your home is up against a really steep hillside, it's a lot easier for goats and sheep to climb around because they like doing that than it is for humans to go up and cut. So because of that, and because we're working on steep slopes and because of the animal impact of just walking around, there can be issues with erosion if you're not being cautious about it. And with sliding, when I say sliding, I don't mean anything like what you've described, just, you know, rocks rolling down the hill. And so it's definitely something to be cautious of and something that we're, we are aware of on a project. Granted, I have not worked on a project where it's been like post fire and we're worried about slides. Oftentimes areas that were just burned in a fire, the fire department is like very involved in kind of coming up with post, sometimes anyway, coming up with post fire management practices. Um, and so they'll kind of determine if they think it's an area that is at risk of sliding. But we, I haven't, I haven't actually worked in many areas where that's been the case. I will just say that, you know, erosion, concerns of erosion or concerns of working on too steep of slopes is definitely something that we come up against. And oftentimes I've been in situations where the client wants me to graze it, but I, I'm not comfortable with it because I'm worried about it. And I think I'm a little hypersensitive to that. And um, we won't do it. If, if I think that it's going to put the land or my animals, especially at risk, it's, uh, it's not worth doing. That's so interesting because what I was originally asking was like, if it supports erosion, just because having, I guess, you know, having them walking on the land causes that. But I would think just like having, just pooping and um, being more attentive to the land would support it a little more. But I guess they're like grazing and walking on it. So well, that you're, makes sense. you are right. You are right in that. Well, you know, the idea of, of minor hoof impact as well as fertilizing with the manure does, is creating healthier soils, which is like making the whole root system stronger and more stable, um, which would help stabilize the land. So that is happening. But there also in other instances can be if the area is already super steep and already maybe having a lot of sliding issues that then you you have to be careful. So it, it's not a one size fits all. You know, the, the animals don't do the best thing for every piece of land all of the time. There are places where you have to be a bit more cautious and there are other concerns and 
you've got to be a little bit more careful about that kind of stuff. And then there's other instances, like you're saying, where maybe they've had issues with erosion and they've brought us in for that exact purpose. They want us to fertilize it. They want us to put some, get a little bit of hoof impact and um, in order to try to control erosion. So it, it does kind of vary. Okay. That makes sense. Oh my gosh. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time and educating us on this. I think it's really important. I know people in our community are also passionate about it and interested in different, you know, natural ways to mitigate fires. And also we didn't even get into it, but you know, the whole other part of your business where you are shearing the wool and that's like another way to, we just did a podcast with a company, Holy Lamb Organics. Mm -hmm. And it's, I don't know if you've heard of them, but they have a whole operation where they have like wool mattresses and different wool products. And I, I love what can be created with wool and what can be replaced and just wool. Um, even we talked about this a little bit, but the difference with like how wool is a natural, it doesn't need like any sort of fire retardant or anything on it. It naturally can support even like firemen wear wool, you know, right, on the job right. somewhere. <laughs> Um, yeah. So it's just really exciting because it's a holistic way to incorporate different things into our lives to support with fire mitigation, but also support us with not just using natural materials in our day to day life to have a less toxic home and a less toxic lifestyle. And so I'm just a really huge fan of what you guys are doing. I I love that it's you know part of your ancestry. It's part of your culture. And that you're, you know, going all in on that and managing it all. And you're also, I know um, we didn't even talk about this, but on the targeted grazing community committee for California wool growers and on the board of the California Sheep Commission. So you're totally all in. And I, I just love that um, you're passionate about it. And so I just wanted to say thank you for taking the time to educate us. And we'd love to learn more about how, um, as a community, as a business, and um, how our community in general can support you guys and your initiatives. Yeah, thank you so much. And it would, you know, like you mentioned in the beginning, it, it was really cool how just like a random listener of Pia's podcast, I heard you guys speaking about about this and about goat grazing that's being done. I mean, it was really, I was so excited because I was like, wow, like this is just like a fun like lifestyle podcast I like to listen to. And they're noticing this work all throughout the state. And that was really cool. And I think that, you know, that's something that makes an impact on not only my personal business and our industry, but also just the state and how land is managed in California. You know, the more people that are talking about these types of practices and are spreading that information through in the communities that are impacted typically by fire, you know, the more chance that our state has of protecting itself. And so that was really, really cool to just by, you know, chance here, you guys bring that up. And I was, you know, so excited by that. And um, yeah, it makes me really optimistic that, you know, the state can turn around and we can, which I've already seen, you know, more and more agencies are working to come up with fire prevention plans, whether it's grazing or burning or, you know, going through with hand crews and thinning. And it's really exciting. And I'm definitely much more optimistic about the state of the vegetation and land here in California. Yeah. Can you share with us a little bit about how people can get in touch with you to learn more, whether to work with you or share more about what you guys are up to or even support your initiatives? Um, I don't know if you're a nonprofit or not, but maybe there are people who are interested in donating or supporting in some way if you have any sort of nonprofit arm. 
Yeah. So to get a hold of me, you can go to starcreeklandstewards.com. You can also catch us at, on Instagram. I run that one. So that's Star Creek Land Stewards um, on Instagram. Those are two really good ones. We're not a nonprofit, but you know the California wool growers, while it says wool growers, as actually encompasses both sheep and goat producers. And I didn't even get into like the species that we use, but we have hair sheep actually for our targeted grazing business. So they don't produce wool, they shed naturally. Um, but they, the California wool growers is a really great resource for a lot of sheep and goat producers throughout the state. And they're a great organization to support if you feel so inclined. But um, yeah, I think just like following along and if you have any questions, you can absolutely reach out on either of those resources and just, you know, tell people about this kind of work. It's happening where you live. I would guarantee it. If you live in California, it's happening where you live and there's someone nearby who can work in your area. And if, you know, you're curious about how to find someone, feel free to reach out to me or like I mentioned, matchgrades.com. Um, because this kind of work is impactful and is saving communities. We've seen it firsthand. So I really appreciate it.